What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. The Flat Earth History of Science, Chapter 1, The Beginnings of Human Science After the Flood. We see in the first few chapters of the Bible that man's first science was horticulture, as Adam was commissioned with in the Garden of Eden. We see in the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis that Noah had skill and knowledge in dry distillation and firing, which he used to make pitch as well as mathematics and basic geometry which he used to build his legendary ark. After the flood came the Tower of Babel. The account given in Genesis 11 again denotes the focus on dry distillation and firing. We read in verse 3, And they said to one another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. It's firing, dry distillation. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Josephus, in his Antiquities of the Jews, Book 1, Chapter 4, states, quote, Now it was Nimrod who excited them to such an affront and contempt of God. He was the grandson of Ham, the son of Noah a bold man and of great strength of hand. He persuaded them not to ascribe it to God as if it was through his means they were happy, but to believe it was their own courage which procured that happiness. He also gradually changed the government into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God but to bring them into a constant dependence on his power. He also said he would be revenged on God if he should have a mind to drown the world again. For that he would build a tower too high for the waters to be able to reach, and that he would avenge himself on God for destroying their forefathers. Now the multitude were very ready to follow the determination of Nimrod, to esteem it a piece of cowardice, to submit to God, and they built a tower, neither sparing any pains nor being in any degree negligent about the work. And by reason of the multitude of hands employed in it, it grew very high, sooner than anyone could expect, but the thickness of it was so great, and it was so strongly built that thereby its great height seemed upon the view to be less than it really was. It was built of burnt brick, cemented together with mortar, made of bitumen, that it might not be liable to admit water. When God saw that they acted so madly, he did not resolve to destroy them utterly, since they were not grown wiser by the destruction of the former sinners. But he caused a tumult among them, by producing in them diverse languages, and causing that, through the multitude of those languages, they should not be able to understand one another. The place wherein they built the tower is now called Babylon, because of the confusion of that language, which they readily understood before. For the Hebrews mean by the word Babel, confusion. Unquote. Thus we see in primeval Babylon, Chaldea, the knowledge of dry distillation and firing, mathematics and geometry, no doubt as passed on by Noah. Here the tribes of humanity descended from the sons of Noah, wandered the world in confusion and darkness as a result of their sin, and scattered about from the mountains of Babel, Genesis 11.9, in the mountains of Ararat, 
Genesis 8.4, which the mighty ark had rested. See Josephus, Antiquities of the Jews, Book 1, Chapters 5 and 6. This view of the descent of man, instead of the Darwinian idea of the ascent of man, from a golden age of the creation, is a narrative supported by the history of all the ancient peoples and also mountains of evidence. Number one, as has already been seen, the evidence and historical testimony for Noah's flood is insurmountable. Uh, we have the universal testimony of all the ancient peoples and their religions testifying to Noah's existence, testifying to the great flood. We have the, um, the fossils, whale fossils on top of the Andes Mountains. Many sea creatures found on the tops of mountains all over the earth. We have the Darupiner site. Number two, it has been shown recently that human beings are losing DNA and that the ancients had more DNA. You can read this article from Science News. Ancestral humans had more DNA. Number three, the discovery of the Antikythera mechanism proves that the ancients had high technology. This is a computer, folks. The Antikythera mechanism is a computer dating back thousands of years. That's, that's admitted by the secular academic community. Number four, John Clark Ridpath documents the many examples of ancient civilizations devolving into obscurity. From pages 376 to 379 of volume one of his Universal History, Ridpath states, quote, In the next place, it may be well urged that the many nations within the historical era have actually declined from higher into lower conditions. In fact, all the great nations, once in possession of the better parts of the world, once organized into tremendous communities, once filling the streets of magnificent cities, once directing the commerce, cultivating the arts, and controlling the energies of mankind, once gathering into vast treasure houses the resources of the world, and sending forth invincible armies for the conquest of Gentiles and barbarians, have now disappeared among the powers and are known only by annals and memorials and I, I maintain folks that that is precisely what the entire history of mankind is it is also true that these great nations have as a rule not gone by sudden eclipse and extinction but they have rather fallen away by degrees relaxed insensibly at first and sensibly afterwards their hold of power and crumbled away until attack from without and feebleness from within have joined their forces to complete an inevitable downfall. It is hardly needed to recite examples of national decay. It is almost superfluous to recount the tremendous domination once established in the valley of the Nile, now represented by Arab sheiks, miserable collections of degenerate cops and squad villages and a few degraded fellas plowing with oxen in the glee by the river banks. The early Chaldean Empire at the month of the Euphrates has left only scattered monumental traces. The glory of the Assyrians and the later Babylonians has passed forever from the valley of the two great rivers. The tremendous Turmans, iron, foragers at the first from the mines of the Altas who came as conquerors into Western Asia surrounded the city of Constantine and made it their capital are now degenerated into the opium smokers and harem builders of the Bosphorus. The splendor of Athens and the glory of the Athenian intellect have given way through long ages to foreign domination and the traveler stands sad-hearted among the ruins of the Acropolis or marks with astonishment the miserable goat horses built over the Oracle of Delphi. The Rome of an antiquity whose solid walls of stone and tremendous legions clanking their armor on the stone slabs of the Appian Way have become only a tradition and a name has shrunk from her ancient circuit and the hills to a commonplace city. The throne of superstition and conservatism and haunt of beggary. The careful reader of the preceding pages will not have failed to note the many of the monumental remains of antiquity broken unmistakably the energies and genius of a superior people. 
Some of the primitive memorials of the human race are among the most convincing and substantial evidences of power and grandeur. The granite obelisks and pyramids of Egypt, the so-called Cyclopean ruins in Greece, the old ducts such as the Cloea Maxima at Rome, the great military mounds and fortifications in North America, and particularly the Peruvian ruins on the plateaus of the Andes, mark and emphasize the activities of races of men hardly inferior to the strongest and most skillful known in history. It will be remembered that in many of these localities barbarism long flourished and ran rampant after the tremendous monuments reared by preceding civilized peoples had gone down to ruins. The Peruvian monuments were in their origin as far anterior to the domination of the Incas as the Incas are remote from the Peruvians of today. The earthworks and mounds of North American uh, antidote the epoch of the red men by a span of ages. The massive foundations laid by the Etruscans in their own district and then Latium are far more ancient than ever than even the traditions of the primitive Latin race. So also are the Cyclopean remains of Greece far more remote than even the age of the heroes and also the monuments of Egypt. It is sufficient to say that the oldest of them are the grandest and most enduring. And if you want to know what he's talking about regarding the Peruvian civilizations, um, there was actually a, a book written called The Technology of the Gods. Um, talks about this. And there's actually a, a YouTube number of YouTube videos by the author of that book uh, who goes into detail on the Peruvian civilizations. His name is David Hatcher Childress. And he goes through the city of Cusco in Peru, C-U-S-C-O, and uh, it shows us these huge uh, ancient civilizations that existed there with these huge stones and the way they connect them is very creative. And, uh, it's an absolutely fascinating uh, documentary. Um, number five, the ancient languages are more advanced than their derivations. Ridpath states in his Universal History, Volume 1, page 379, quote, in the fourth place, the evidence of language points to a primitive condition of mankind in which the intelligence and reason were the supreme characteristics. Whatever may have been the origin of human speech, it is clearly a rational product. The oldest languages with which we are acquainted are the most perfect in their kind. If we consider that the great group, which we call the Aryan or the Indo-European languages, we find them to improve as we trace up their descent toward their origin. This is to say that as a rule, the older dialectical form is fuller, more complete, and more rational than its descendant derivative. Unquote. From this time of man's fall, from his golden beginning, until man's first kingdoms in Chaldean Egypt, man lived in his post-flood and post-tower of Babel confusion, primeval barbarism as hunters and nomads, a sad state of affairs that man to this day still pines for in his libertarian childishness. And this is from the Universal History, just showing the basic um, tools and uh, instruments that were used by primeval man in his barbaristic state. And I just want to review um, how man got to this point. Okay, number one, he fell into sin. Number two, he fell into even more sin and judgment with the flood of Noah. At number three, after the flood of Noah and the complete destruction of man's civilizations, there was even further sin and judgment with the Tower of Babel. So that's the threefold sin judgments um, that drove man from a state of a golden age to barbarism. For an introduction to primitive technology, I would suggest the YouTube channel by that very name, Primitive Technology, as his videos are an excellent introduction to this era of human development. Ridpath tells us in Volume 1, page 368 of his Universal History, that the first step from barbarism to civilization is a recognition of a tribe's collective identity, which produces a history and the second step is the use of metals, and that, that cannot be overemphasized. Um, the whole point of uh, history is to tell a story. Whose story? A story of a collective people. 
okay? Those people who want us to turn to libertarianism today, these people have not learned the first lessons of human civilization. Individualism is a destruction of a people and of history because there is no collective national history. It's utterly absurd. This technology then gives the tribe the ability to express their collective history through stone engravings and stone monuments. Some beautiful artwork here in Red Paz Universal History. This transition from barbarism to early civilization is known today as the Neolithic Era, Stone Age. Thus, nine generations from Noah, Abraham, born 2034 BC according to Anne's Day and 1996 BC according to Usher. The son of Terah came out of Ur of the Chaldees, Genesis 11:31, with his family and came to Haran in modern-day Turkey. When he was 75 years old, Elohim called Abraham out of Haran from his father's house, in Genesis 12:4, to the land of Canaan. After suffering famine in the land of Canaan, Abraham visited Egypt, which had cultivated the science of animal husbandry. We read that in Genesis 12:16. Thus, Redpath testifies to the accuracy of the Bible's account of history, recording the beginnings of man's technology in Chaldea and Egypt in Volume 9, page 123 of his famous Universal History. Quote, For their learning, the Chaldeans have been proverbial for 3,000 years. Doubtless the country at the head of the Persian Gulf was that land of fabulous wisdom, known by the ancients as the East. The great poets of the historians of Rome designated by the name Chaldean, whoever was famous in a knowledge of the stars, the lore of books, and the gift of prophecy. There is no doubt that long before the language of the Hebrews became a fit vehicle for literary expression, there was in lower Mesopotamia men worthy to be called philosophers. The traditions of antiquity point to two cities as the fountains of human wisdom, Memphis in Egypt and Babylon of the Chaldees but learning and philosophy grew up slowly. They have their roots in those homely arts by which human life is sustained and invigorated. All the refinements of civilization rest upon the two fundamental facts of agriculture and architecture. The first stage of the evolution out of barbarism is marked by plowing and building. Where the plow is unknown and the hammer unheard, the tribes of men will never reach beyond the development of hunters and nomads. Thus the beginning of man's civilized science comprised of agriculture and architecture, the plow and the hammer. The essential philosophical motivations for the departure from barbarism to civilization is mostly concerned with a dominionist anthropology instead of the libertarian anthropology of barbarism. And secondly, as we have already seen in ethnic collectivism, the first languages of the ancient world would comprise cuneiform, you can see here, and the cuneiform is basic Phoenician script that the Hebrew language uh, evolved from. The Hebrew language is not the original uh, language of people. The original language is recognized as cuneiform in the Egyptian hieroglyphics. Uh, exactly which one came first is uh, a matter of intense uh, debate among scholars. And then the Egyptian Demotic script, uh, which was used among the common people in ancient Egypt. At this stage of human progress, the houses of the common people were made of palm trees and plaster. Basically, the making of plaster required the collection of stone in a quarry, traditionally it's limestone, and it's firing, it's crushing and mixing with water and sand. So you basically bake stone, again traditionally limestone, and then after it's been thoroughly fired, you crush it down and mix it with uh, water and sand and you've got plaster. The later developments of human architecture were triggered by man's desire to build more extravagant temples for the gods. This process required the perfecting of firing, and thus came the invention of the kiln. The kiln is a uh, more intense, more advanced form of firing. 
Unfortunately for the Chaldeans, the abundance of stone quarries paled in comparison to Egypt, which is why the monuments and pyramids of Egypt stand today, while the structures of an ancient Chaldea are primarily known through histories and reconstructed facades. And people will ask today, where, where is this Tower of Babel that you talk about in the Bible? Where uh, The Tower of Babel, is, as uh, Josephus mentioned, was made of brick. Okay, that's just, that's not an, a stone. Okay, that's just clay that's been turned, that's been fired, and, and then the structure doesn't last but probably a few centuries. But that's the reason why the Egyptians have pyramids lasting today is because they actually had an abundance of, not necessarily an abundance, but comparably to, compared to uh, Chaldea and Mesopotamia, they had more stone quarries. And so they had better building materials than the people in Chaldea and Babylon. The primary source for our knowledge of Chaldean history and science come from a series of tablets found by Austin Layard, the library of Ashurbanipal. The library of Ashurbanipal is this thousands of uh, clay tablets that were used to inscribe the history of the ancient Chaldean people. Due to the clear night sky in the Chaldean land, the Chaldeans were the first astronomers and chronologers. Ridpath states on page 128 of his uh, Universal History, Volume 9, It was seen that the sun completes his course in the heavens in about twelve rounds of the moon, and therefore was the year divided into twelve months of the thirty days each. And by his course, he's talking about the zodiac. They could see the, the, where the sun was in comparison to the zodiac. Um, that, was, that was how they determined when he'd finish his course. When, when, it, when the sun would come around uh, back again to a constellation that they were familiar with, then they would consider that a year. And so they, they considered that... It was 12 rounds or 12 cycles of the moon, 12 phases of the moon, that it took the sun to make his full cycle of, of the zodiac. And of course, the moon's phases were about 30 days each. So just by cycles of nature, they saw that the year was 12 cycles of the moon or 12 months and that the months were about 30 days each. And so you have the primitive calendar being formed just by an observance of nature. And when this was found to measure the year inaccurately, a system of intercalculations was introduced by which the calendar year was made to correspond with the sidereal year of 365 and a fourth days. The progress of the sun through the heavens was mapped for each of the 12 months, and thus the 12 signs of the zodiac were established. The deviations of the planets from the paths of the sun on either side determined the boundaries of the zodiacal signs, and each sign was divided into 30 degrees by the daily progress of the solar orb. The phases of the moon fixed the limits of the week at seven days, and after the analogy of the year, each day was divided into 12 parts or hours. Thus from nature were deduced the elements of the duodecimal system of computation. The hour was divided into 60 parts, 5 times 12. The cubits consisted of 24 finger breaths, 2 times 12. The sauce was a cycle of 60 years. The nur was 10 times 60, and the sar was the square of 60 or 3,600 years. And so this is where we get the 12, um, uh, the 12 units, the 12 digits of our clocks. It's from the ancient duodecimal system that is the base radix uh, or the base digit system that we used originally the ancient peoples the ancient uh, Chaldean peoples the way they derived the duodecimal system was from an observation of nature is that um, a year is uh, understood and comprised in the 12 phases of the moon and that's where our base 12 radix comes from. For determining the distance from point to point in the open skies, the breadth of the sun's disk was taken as a unit. On morning of the equinox, at the precise moment when the upper limb of the sun was seen to cut the horizon, uh, 
An orifice in a water jar was opened and the fluid allowed to run until the full disc was risen. This is absolutely brilliant. Pay very close attention. Okay. So what they're going to do is they're right when the sun's the, the top of the sun reaches the horizon, they'll start pouring water out of this orifice. And then right when the sun has completely uh, ascended above the horizon, right when the bottom of it is above the horizon, they would stop and they would take that calculation of, of that measurement of water. Okay, and then what they would do is they would, they would, uh, on another day they would, as soon as the sun, the crest of the uh, would crest the horizon, they would uh, start pouring water out of this orifice, and then they wouldn't stop until the very next day, 24 hours later, when the sun, uh, the crescent of the horizon came right above the horizon. Okay, and what they did was they took the measurement before of just the sun and then compared that to uh, how much water poured from an entire 24-hour period and they measured that and it was about 700th of a 720th uh, of a measurement okay continuing with past quotation the water discharge was carefully measured and was found to be 1 720th of the quantity discharged through the same orifice by sunrise on the following morning from which the inference was drawn that the whole orbit of the sun is measured by 720 times the breadth of its own disk. This ingenious method of observation furnished a unit both of space and time, the former being one half of degree and the later two minutes or one thirtieth of an hour. The distance which an active foot courier could walk in 30 units of time, that is, an hour, was called a parasang. And one thirtieth of a parasang was a stadium. The stadium was divided into three hundred and sixty parts called cubits, and sixty cubits constitute a plethron, and that's where we get our basic understanding of three hundred and sixty degrees, and that's where these basic units we use for geometry. By the application of these simple measures to the terrestrial and celestial spheres, the Chaldeans obtained very extraordinary results, results which may fairly be called scientific. They discovered and recorded the fact that in a period of 223 months and lunar eclipses return in the same order, the establishment of this cycle gave the length of the synodic and periodic months with so much accuracy that modern astronomers have found the calculations true to within less than five seconds of our time. Ridpath continues, some knowledge of arithmetic was necessary precedent to progress in astronomy, nor is it a matter of conjecture that the Chaldeans had considerable skill in the science of numbers. Two systems of notation were employed, the one duodecimal, the other decimal. In writing the numbers, only two elementary characters, the wedge and the arrowhead, were employed. These characters were combined in a manner at once simple and comprehensive so as to constitute a complete and satisfactory table of notation. Ridpath, Universal History, Volume 9, page 129-130. From this point, the base 60 numeral system in the Sumerian mathematics developed. Sedgwick and Tyler state on page 24 of their A Short History of Science. In the field of algebra, Babylonians of 2000 BC had the equivalent of a formula for the solution of the quadratic equation, which until 1929 was attributed to the late Alexandrian Greeks more than 2,000 years later. We also find systems of linear equations and of quadratic equations, and some problems leading to cubic equations which were solved with the aid of the tables, etc. In plane geometry there was a correct knowledge of area for rectangles, triangles, and trapezoids of similar triangles of the right angle inscribed in the semicircle and of the important theorem known long afterwards as Pythagorean. And folks, I just I want to uh, park on this point for a moment. What these what is happening with the development of archaeology is is scientists are finding that the ancients were more advanced than traditionally we thought. And what this is doing it's it's giving more credibility to the Bible that human beings have fallen from a golden state. We have not evolved from a primordial state. 
And what what's happening now is the, the atheists are having to move from a Darwinian position to a position of some kind of alien technology. That aliens did this. Aliens uh, were responsible for some ancient technology and ancient civilization. They, they, they can't say that it was, as the Bible describes, that man made, or God made man this um, upright, fully righteous, advanced creature that fell into sin. We can't say that. Because, you know, that would destroy their debauched way of living. So what they're going to do is they're going to say that uh, aliens created this. Okay, so just to let you know what kind of disgusting manipulation is being used um, by the modern atheists. Uh, the original astronomy of Egypt is uh, comprehended in their original lunisteller calendar, which divided the year into 12 months by the phases of the moon, but determined the new year by the flooding of the river Nile and the heliacal rising of Sirius, or as they call it, Sothis. We read in the Calendars of Ancient Egypt by Richard A. Parker, University of Chicago Press, Studies in Ancient Oriental Civilization, number 26, page 31, quote, The proposed original calendar, so that the reader may follow the trend of my own argument through the pages of discussion head, I shall present at this point a statement of what I conceive the original calendar to have been. Whatever it may have been in prehistory, the first Egyptian calendar of record was lunar, and it was based upon the heliacal rising of the star Sothis, or what's also called Sirius. This event was called by the Egyptians Wontrumpt, opener of the year. The twelve months of the normal year were divided into three seasons, Get, Pret, and Simu, of four months each. The individual months were named after the most important feast which occurred in them. The first of the year, the month of thy feast, began with the first day of invisibility of the moon before sunrise after Wumpt This first day of the year was called Tipi Rumpt. The twelfth month of the year was named Wipt Rumpt after the feast which also had to fall in it. Because the lunar year was normally but 354 days long, whenever the first month began within 11 days of whipped rumped, it was intercalary, lest at the end of that year the feast whomped rump fell out of its month. This intercalary month, which occurred every three, rarely two years, was dedicated to Thoth, and a feast of the god Doth was celebrated in it. Figure 14 illustrates the assumed regulation of the calendar. The primitivity of a lunisteller calendar. This type of lunar calendar, one whose beginning was determined by a star, is by no means unique among primitive people. And then he goes on to list a number of civilizations who used a lunisteller calendar. The next major scientific accomplishment would be with Sneferu and Khufu of the Egyptian Fourth Dynasty, who began the building of the ancient pyramids. Professor Bob Breyer argues that the original peoples of ancient Egypt are the Coptic peoples. He bases this on the fact that the original Demotic language of ancient Egypt has been preserved down to today by the liturgies of the Coptic Church in Egypt. Breyer argued that the Coptic language was instrumental in translating the ancient Egyptian language not to be confused with hieroglyphs, from the Rosetta Stone. Uh, you can see that in his great courses, Lecture 5, uh, pages 14 to 15 of his manual to that lecture. Speaking of the legendary Egyptian pharaoh Sesostris, usually identified with a 12th dynasty pharaoh, Herodotus explains the origin of geometry in his Histories, Book 2, quote, For this reason, Egypt was cut up, and they said that this king distributed the land to all the Egyptians, giving an equal square portion to each man. And from this he made his revenue, having appointed them to pay a certain rent every year. And if the rivers should take away anything from any man's portion, he would come to the king and declare that which had happened, and the king used to send men to examine and to find out by measurement how much less the piece of land had become, in order that for the future the man might pay less in proportion to the rent appointed. And I think that thus 
the art of geometry was found out and afterwards came into Hellas also. For as touching the sundial and the gnomon and the twelve divisions of the day, they were learned by the Hellenes from the Babylonians." Unquote. From the mathematics and geometry worked out by Sneferu and Khufu in the fourth dynasty, Egypt developed its math and geometry as can be seen in the Moscow mathematical papyrus and the Rhind mathematical papyrus where we find a developed mathematics geometry and even algebra. Basic Egyptian clocks were the sundial and the water clock. Sedgwick and Tyler state on page 21 of their A Short History of Science, quote, the artificial subdivision of the day and night into hours was achieved in Egypt by means of some form of the sundial for the day and of the water clock or clepsydra for the night, day and night having each 12 hours of varying lengths. The earliest timepiece known is an elaborate water clock described by its maker. Amenhemet on the wall of his tomb chapel in the cemetery of Egyptian Thebes about 1550 BC. A 13th century Egyptian sundial was discovered in Egypt's Valley of the Kings, and I'll be doing a subsequent video on sundials. Here is an example of an ancient Egyptian water clock. A water clock is a device where time is measured simply by the flow of liquid into or out from a vessel and the amount is then measured. But what of Stonehenge? John Clark Ridpath states in volume 1 page 335 to 336 of his Universal History, it is also well established by an examination of the mounds in the vicinity that the structure belongs to a period not only earlier than the invasion of Hengist and his Saxon marauders, but long anterior to the conquest by the Romans at the beginning of our era. It is true that no mention is made of Stonehenge by name in the Latin authors, but Hecateus, a Greek historian who's flourished at Miletus about 350 BC, describes a magnificent circular temple situated in what he calls the island of the Hyperbeans over against uh, Celtica. And the description is of a kind to warrant the conclusion that the edifice in question was no other than Stonehenge. Clustered around this great ruin of prehistoric times are many tumuli containing the dead and the relics which were buried with them. The tumuli is basically talking about a history of stone where people basically use these huge stones for all manner of things, for monuments, historical monuments, for shelter, for art, etc. No fewer than 300 burial mounds are found within a radius of three miles from the stone pillars, marking the site of what was doubtless primitive temple. From this, it would appear that the whole area uh, roundabout was an ancient cemetery with some sort of barbaric temple in the center. The tumuli are manifestly tombs. In every case on opening one of these mounds, the remains of the dead are found. In the great majority of cases, the internment has been by cremation, and the evidences show that the manner of sepulchre was identified with that um, generally employed in the Age of Bronze. If we open one of the tumuli, and hundreds of them have been explored, we shall find invariably the remains of one or more human beings. Here again we discover that differences of instinct and method, which has always characterized the doings of men, the dead are placed in two postures, one sitting and the other prone, after the manner employed in the modern burial. There seems to have been pains taken in the adjustment of the body in a posture befitting repose, and in determining what this should be. Some of the uh, prehistoric tribes chose one position and some another. The same variety has been noticed in the case of our Indian Aborigines in America, many of whom arrange the bodies of the dead in a sitting posture. In the prehistoric burial mounds we are now considering utensils or, found, or food were placed, and food were placed, about the body as if to serve the dead in the land of the hereafter. 
It is here that the best revelation of the manner of life peculiar to these people has been made, and the best evidence afforded of the epoch to which they belonged, as already said. The implements exhumed from the tumuli are almost invariably of bronze. In a few instances, iron weapons have been discovered, but it has been invariably found on closer scrutiny that the same have resulted from a subsequent burial in an old grave, and thus uh, Stonehenge. The Biblical Astronomy and Calendar To understand how the Bible described the original natural and mosaic calendar, um, we must begin the year with the vernal equinox and the ripe Abib. Uh, this is from Genesis 1.14. And Elohim said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. So the scripture is telling us that the lights in the firmament are for the telling of years. Okay. And this is the, the moon and the sun in this context. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made, uh, Elohim made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-five. Thus saith Yehovah, which giveth the sun for a light by day and the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night. Exodus 12.1, And Yehovah spoke unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Deuteronomy 16.1, Observe the month of Abib, and keep the Passover, which is exactly what Exodus 12 was talking about. Unto the Lord thy Elohim, unto Yehovah thy Elohim. For in the month of Abib, it's the ripe barley, Yehovah the Elohim brought thee forth out of Egypt by night. So we see not only from the celestial bodies, but also from the reality around us, from the, the seasons around us, we see when the earth is made new. The earth is made new when the, when the sun has cycled its, uh, it, its movement through the, through the zodiac, and then that will be confirmed by a renewal of the earth around us in spring. Okay? So all things from nature, from astronomy, from scripture, are all in agreement with one another. Number two, the new month is determined by the moon. Thus the word Kodesh is used synonymously for the new moon and month in scripture. Okay. The new year begins this year with the 29th of March at evening, making it the first day of the new year. The moon illuminates at 1.8% this night, which is visible to, by the naked eye. Thus, if we count at evening from the 29th at evening uh, in March to the 14th day of the first month is then April 12th at evening. So, and, and then we see in Genesis chapter 1, the, the, the evening to evening, the, the, the day begins with an evening. Okay. So, thus is the ancient history of man and his scientific development giving special attention to man's origins, language, mathematics, geometry, and astronomy. And thus, chapter 1 of the Flat Earth History of Science. Southern Israelite, signing off. Peace. This is the Southern Israelite signing off. My mission in these videos and my other websites is the creation of a new nation for the British and Northern European Protestant peoples in North America and abroad in the continuation of the Protestant Reformation in reaction to and preparation for the inevitable crisis coming upon the West, and certainly North America, in preparation for this great task. I have written 10 scholarly books, an academic bibliography, thousands of articles and essays, and compiled detailed print and audio libraries available for free online, and have presented these works against the best scrutiny that I could find, both from personal and print form academic sources. I offer my work for free at the Google Drive linked in the description, but I have also provided my work in paperback form at lulu.com, which is also linked in the description. My books are the following. 225 Reasons Why I Believe the Earth is Flat. The title is a sufficient description. The Myth of Gender Equality, which is an exposure of feminism and the sexual revolution, where I expose the fact that the way of life lived by most people in the West today was created by a gang of professional pedophiles child rapists and pathological liars at the Kinsey Institute that created our abortion holocaust, the destruction of the family, the human trafficking industry. These are the greatest crimes 
in world history. Index of miscellaneous articles of Protestant messianic eschatology, which exposes the Roman Empire and its extension. The Holy Roman Empire and the Catholic religion is the greatest enemy of mankind. The next book is a timeline of Jesuit intrigue. This is a detailed timeline of the significant events leading up to the present day from the Protestant historicist perspective, which fingers the Jesuit order of the Roman Catholic Church as being the most influential group of men in the modern world. Their intended goal is the fulfillment of the three-age prophecy of Joachim of Fiore, and thus the destruction of all traditional religions and ways of life pursuant to an international communist government. A Defense of the South Against the Jesuit Counter-Reformation, where I exposed the United States government for 150 years of theft, rape, murder, religious and ethnic genocide started by the virtue-signaling Christian Pelagian narcissists in New England, and how they have manipulated the world with their baseless virtue-signaling morality. I also discuss the Bible's teachings on race and nationalism. I also go into detail about how the neo-Nazis are simply Darwinian atheists, and how they've worked those ideas out consistently and the disgusting dishonesty of modern liberals to say they believe in Darwinism and then completely reject neo-Nazism which is Darwinism in its raison d'entre. It's what neo-Nazism is, is Darwinism and how the neo-Nazis are wrong about the Jews. I mean what I am doing is the proper response to neo-Nazism. The liberals they have completely failed to silence these people, and there's a reason. They have a fundamental philosophical inconsistency. The next book's Conquering the Verbal Sorcery of Trinitarianism, where I expose the Buddhist, pagan, and neoplatonic roots of early Catholic Christian theology and how it has affected the world and helped foment modern communism. The next book, 166 Theses Against the Jews, the Hebrew Roots, the Ebionites, the Muslims, and the Premillennialists, where I expose the root error of all the major organized religions that claim Abraham is their forebear, namely the rabbinic Talmudic teaching that the destruction of the first temple was God's indication that the Levitical blood atonements were a mere vestigial appendage to the Mosaic Covenant, and that the law of Moses given by the Creator was only intended for the Jews, as summarized in the infamous Jewish Noahide doctrine. Next book is Thomas Jefferson Was Wrong, an exposure of the modern American patriot movements, where I expose the American founding fathers as belligerent Satanists and traitors who hated the Bible, hated our people, and have led us into the chaos we live in today under the banner of a false and contradictory libertarian patriotism. Next book, Why I Left the Christian Church, which chronicles the development of the original messianic Jewish sect, the Nazarenes how their hegemony was usurped and replaced by the Greco-Roman philosophical tradition beginning with Gnosticism and then with the creation of the Neoplatonic school. Uh, after this, the original Messianic theology was completely abandoned and thus began the rise of Catholic theology championed by the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Papacy, which leads me to my final work, 130 Reasons to Reject Traditional Christianity for Messianic Judaism, The Theology of the Seven Ecumenical Councils in the Eastern and Roman Churches Refuted, which title is a sufficient description, and I dare the opposing viewer to contact the very best Christian apologist you can find. And if you want him to be able to hang with me for even 10 minutes, you're going to have, want to find like a Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox scholar, because the Protestants don't have a clue about the seven ecumenical councils. And bring me the president of the most prestigious Christian seminary you can find, and I will utterly destroy him. I dare you. We'll do a Google Hangout, phone call, whatever you want. Now, my platform website that I created is the Southern Protestant at southernprotestant.com. I have links to all of my stomping grounds on the internet, but I wanted to draw your attention to two sections of this website. I have compiled two libraries. The print library contains many works of philosophical pertinence that are available for free on the internet and provide a complete philosophical curriculum for the professional researcher or advanced layman researcher which covers a ubiquitous array of topics pertinent to a complete defense of biblical revelation, biblical cosmology, biblical and nationalistic ethics, economics, and politics. The second section I wanted to draw your attention to is the audio library. I know that many folks do not have the time to sit down and read for hours on end, but do have plenty of time to listen to audio lectures and audio books. This is why I created the audio library. 
This library will be an audio extension of the previous library where I will constantly be adding to to further the education of my people, both with my own audio lectures, but also audio books created with the text reader program I have on my computer. And I'll be citing uh, pertinent scholarly works from the Western Protestant tradition, uh, some from medieval tradition, um, some disputes between Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic scholars that are very good, some from the early Christian period, some from the ancient world with the Jews. My blog is the southernisraelite.wordpress.com that I constantly update in response to current news and essays I am writing. This YouTube page is something I plan on working on frequently as well, but that is really up to you folks. I have found in the many years that I have been doing apologetics online that doing excruciating research and inflamed debate and controversy to find the best answers to life's questions seems to drive me further away from where I want to be because of a very inconvenient reality. I can't eat books and I can't take care of a family just because I know a ton of stuff. This work takes time and time is money. If I'm not making money for my work, then I can no longer pursue this research and this activism. And I plan, when I have enough funding, to have my own land and my own homestead. Because I know as soon as I go out publicly and do what I want to do with this, I want to go to these universities and I want to go to these churches. I want to stand there personally and take these institutions down. And I know as soon as I start doing that, I'm going to lose my job. So I need land and some savings, just a little bit of little homestead. I don't care if it's just an acre. I need something where I can take care of myself when the entire society I'm living in just comes crashing in around me. And let me assure the viewer, the position I hold in my country as a member of one of the original families of the Jamestown Settlement, the philosophical platform I present in my books, and the loyalty I have demonstrated for my people that cost me three careers and every friend I have had growing up and the only serious relationship I have ever had is unmatched in the modern world. There's no one on this earth that I know of, and I know thousands of the best apologists and uh, activists, their platforms are child's play. I know the problems of the modern world and the solutions to these problems better than anyone you will come across in your life. I have lived in poverty and ostracism for 15 years for the things I talk about. Anyone who knows my life knows this. This is no game for me. The things that I say I take serious as a heart attack, and I've paid the price for them. So here's my proposal. If I could get merely 3 to $5 a month for my subscribers, let me say that again, 3 to $5 a month, a mere hazelnut latte from you once a month, and I could get this from you on a consistent basis, I could do this work full time. I have linked my Patreon and PayPal accounts in the description of this video. So my work is in your hands, viewer. I pray you will at the very least take these things to heart and put me to the test. If you have any questions, you can comment on this video or email me at southernmessianics at gmail.com. Shalom and peace. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.